call the dish that's fit to air. Cindy Adams is on 77 WABC. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cindy Adams, WABC Radio 770 on the AM dial. I am here every Sunday from 1 to 2. And if you see me on other days, and you'd better... I am in the New York Post, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I have been writing the column since Abraham Lincoln was around. Okay, now I would like to tell you, I've been just doing some research, you know. You think acting is glamorous and people are so famous? I was looking up to see who they were and what they did in the early days. Many started way in the bottom. Like, I asked Hugh Grant, what did you do? You know what he did? He said, I cleaned toilets at the IBM place in London. And he said, I was good at it. Nothing I don't know about cleaning a loo. I can get right down the pipes. I can get crystalline urine out. I might even have been happier in those days. Maybe, he said, one day I'll go back to it. Ah, and Steve Buscemi, he said at 18, I was a Valley Stream movie usher. Valley Stream is a little place out in Long Island. And he said, maybe 40 times when I was ushering, I caught bits of Al Pacino's Dog Day Afternoon. I once saw the whole thing. I didn't know that at $4 a week, Al even cleaned powder rooms. Nicole Kidman did the same in Australia. They both cleaned cans. Well, some stars went to the dogs. Sandra Bullock was an animal beautician. I didn't know they had those things. I have an animal. He doesn't have a beautician. Cindy Lauper was a kennel cleaner. Once a a grocery store clerk Michelle Pfeiffer says, I even learned how to take stems off maraschino cherries. Uh, Okay. Willem Dafoe, he told me, as a teen, I bound penthouse and hustler magazines in a Midwestern factory. I never once in those days looked at those erotic pictures. For me, it could have been National Geographic or Popular Mechanics. I mean, that's what he says. Now, go believe him. Gloria Estefan, she was a customs interpreter at Miami International Airport. She told a newspaper called the Daily Mail in London, I once caught a nun trying to smuggle contraband salami. Listen. She told it to a nun. (laughs) I can't believe she would have made that up. Paul Rudd, he said he DJ'd bar mitzvahs. John Malkovich was a school bus driver. Ozzy Osbourne, he worked in a slaughterhouse. Sly Stallone, (laughs) he quit after a lion's share of pee reached him. He was in those days a New York City zoo attendant. Kelsey Grammer. He was a dishwasher at Denny's. 
Ashton Kutcher, a General Mills factory sweeper. Sinead O'Connor, in Dublin, she worked at being a kissogram girl. Juliana Margulies, she packed dead people's belongings. Wait, I have much more. Woody Harrelson, he was fired 17 times in one year. Javier Bardem played rugby, then he was a bouncer, then he was a writer, then he was a construction worker, then, believe it or not, he was a stripper. Alfred Woodward, she was a gift wrapper, and then, for helping the homeless, she got fired as a perfume spritzer in pennies. Also, she got dumped as a receptionist for saying, quote, I could operate a switchboard when basically I couldn't. Okay, I'm going on. The Wilfred School of Beauty graduate was Danny DeVito. His specialty, beehive hairdos. Beehive hairdos. James Michler, Michner. Something's wrong with my teeth. James Michner. He was a chestnut salesman. Carol Burnett was on Hollywood's Walk of Fame. Her star was put at the door of the theater manager who had once thrown her out and axed her from her job. She got back at him. Jack Nicholson was a cinema usher, and he said, I watched people necking. Then I pointed my flashlight right at them to embarrass the hell out of them. Nice, really nice. Dennis Quaid, I was job challenged. At Astro World, an amusement park, some kid kicked me. I complained and I got laid off. I also then got dumped as a waiter in L.A. for dropping sour cream on some society lady's head. Listen, said Dennis Quaid, I guess I'm clumsy. Pen and Teller's Pen Gillette. He told me I in the old days was a hospital orderly. The worst was to prevent skin flecks and human giblets from clogging the drains. Can you believe all this? And Brad Pitt, who's now being sued by his wife, his ex-wife, he once dressed as a chicken for El Polo Pollo fast food place. He got $8 an hour. Judd Apatow, I started as a dishwasher in Long Island's East Side Comedy Club. They let me host a show. They paid $50. Then I got hired to write jokes for Tom Arnold's early Roseanne days. Nobody knew who Tom was. They didn't know who I was either. And Pete Davidson. 
He's now such a hot shot on Saturday Night Live. He was doing it, or whatever it was he was doing it, to Kim Kardashian. And he said, my very first job in life was to get a tiny part in Nick Cannon's movie, School Dance. My character was named Stink Finger. You ready for this? Stink Finger. That character of mine walked in the background, smelled his fingers, and looked at everyone else. Oh, I can't can't believe I'm actually telling you this. Marissa Tomei, she said, I had a line in The Flamingo Kid with Matt Dillon, which was so when he was drunk. And when I auditioned, they said, I didn't have to take my top off. That was horrifying when you, when you think about it. Either my boobs didn't make it or I was destined for something else. Listen, I think I'm going to come to an end, although I have lots more of this. I'll just do one or two more before you throw me off the air. Steve Buscemi, he says, I tried stand-up. One night at the improv, I got on and they gave me cab fare. I shared the cab with Gilfred, Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> I was so excited. He said, like two words, that's all he said, and we ended up splitting the fare. But we were supposed to split the fare, and although I still love him, I think he actually stiffed me. And now, before you throw me off the air, I am going to go to a commercial. And when you get through with the commercial, you're going to have... This is the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Hey, Dolores, tell me. Hey. What were you? Where are you? What what did you do before you were on on TV? Oh, before I was on The Housewives. Well, um, initially I was a sheriff's officer in Passaic County. I worked in the jail. I transported prisoners. My dream was to be a cop. So that's where I started. Did they did they make a play for you? The prisoners? Okay. Oh, no, they didn't make a play for me. Because that's some of the problems that we've read about at Rikers, that the, the, the corrections officers are, are preyed upon by some of the, the prisoners. Well, you know, um, I, I think that uh, back when, Cindy... There was more of a level of respect, I want to say. And um, although you listen, did I I hear I I was pretty? Did I hear that I was I looked Spanish or did they ask me my uh, um, nationality at times? Because you don't know if I'm Italian or Spanish. But I still uh, I I don't remember anything like that. Of course, there was a lot of frustration. I was transporting prisoners. They were coming out of court, not happy with what they always heard or it was family court. There was a lot of domestic violence. And a lot of anger there. But no, you know, I don't remember that being a problem for me. Or maybe I handled it well. I don't know. I don't remember that in my mind as a memory. How did you get on the show in the first place? Oh, um, well, uh, back when they were looking for housewives, they came to New Jersey. And there was a group of women that I had always hung out with. We were friends for many years. And we would get our hair done together. And they... um, 
visited a hair salon where they asked if they if the producers visited a hair salon where they had asked if they knew a group of women who would be good for a TV show or something. And and they kind of um, the hair salon told them about my group of friends. And that's how we were interviewed. And it was, you know, during the time of those pranos and everybody was intrigued by Jersey. And we really didn't know much about the outside world. We're just Italian girls that all grew up in the same area. And, uh, you know, it was kind of fun. But we were actually surprised to think anybody would be interest- so interested in our lives. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you watched this show before, clearly. You were, you were a fan of it? Well, uh, it was, uh, there was no real, sh- real housewife shows before we had came on. I'm going back, you know, 13 years ago. Oh, I so, see. I see. Yeah, I see. it was. Okay. Mm-hmm. What? So tell me, since I'm a watcher and I'm just somebody who doesn't know, tell me about the so-called fights and are they all make-believe or are they real? Tell me about what it's like to all these ladies together. Oh, Cindy, they are in no sense of the word scripted or exaggerated. When we fight, it's, you know, it's for real. It is absolutely for real. And it's a little bit nerve wracking, you know, but we handle it. But, but, But what do you mean? How can you fight on television when you know the cameras are there? I I don't understand that. Because the cameras aren't a factor in what's going on. It's, we are just who we are. Um, life unfolds and things happen. And, you know, um, the cameras, to me, I, I pay no attention to at all. I think I could speak for Jersey only because I'm closest with them and they are my friends and I am on the show, that um, we are true to who we are. So what you see is what you get. Dolores, are you, are you not aware that you are being scripted that i mean you're you're fighting on television i never please tell me i don't quite understand how that happens fighting on television it's reality but you're all friends it's reality. Cindy, are, have are, you have you always stayed friends with the girls you were always friends with no, I, mean, I, I don't even like my housekeeper and she's been with me 25 years no. there you go now what <laughs> no, more you answered your own question. <laughs> the dynamics of women together are not always good. It, or the, you know, it's, <laughs> there's a lot going on here. And, you know, everything that's said, unlike, I'll tell you this, like, unlike in real life, the one thing is, it gets back to us. We see it. We hear it. And um, there's no escaping what you say. There's no walking around it. There's no, well, um, that's not how I said it. That's very interesting. I, I didn't know the background. Do you ever apologize afterwards when you're not filming or send somebody flowers and say, you're sorry you said that? You know, it's funny. I don't think anyone's ever said, sent flowers. However, I do believe there's been apologies, whether it's sincere <laughs> yeah. or not, or, um, you know, or the, or the apology lasts or makes a difference. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, I happen to be the peacekeeper on the show. So yeah. um, I don't want to ever have to apologize. I don't want to ever hurt somebody where I, I've done something and I hurt them. I, I don't want to have to do that. So I, I really try to just be do the right thing always. 
Dolores, do any of you socialize afterwards, after before the show or at another time, go to each other's houses and have dinner or whatever? Absolutely, 100%, yes. That's before the fight or during the fight or after the fight? It still goes on friendship? Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I mean, Listen, I'm fascinated. I mean, I'm, you I'm, can hold the grudge. You don't have to hold the grudge. Uh, it depends on how how um, egregious the act is that goes on against you or what is said and how can you come back from it, you know? Okay, okay. Now tell me, I don't know, I'm so excited at so many things that I You're want so to ask you. How do you flip houses <laughs> with you your ex-husband? Being excited. Well, I am. I, how do you, how do you, what do you do with houses? Are you in the realty business? So I, I've had many jobs. Cindy, I'm a single mother for 23 years now. And, um, you know, you get more bees with honey. If you can't beat them, join them. Just you name it. And, and I find that uh, hate, right, or, or resentment is an anchor. So I always put it all aside. And I got to hustle. If I make money, if I was making money with my ex-husband, if I was making money with my neighbor, I'm going to make it. So that's it. <laughs> yeah. What do I, I care? This Who's part I understand. I understand this part. Yeah, very easily. Okay. Okay. What do you do? Tell me now. I know that you're busy with animals. I love animals. I was on the board internationally, the ASPCA, for years and years. So animals, I love them more than I love my husband. I know you you love your doggies. I know. I know how you are with your animals, and I appreciate that. And dogs are my life, and I love them. I just lost my my guy, Big Boss. I just lost him a couple weeks ago, and I'm sick over it, I'll tell you. As you know, you know. Yeah. That pain. And uh, my daughter's a veterinarian. Where? And, uh, Where? She's a, a vet in Sussex County Animal Hospital. Yeah. She uh, is an amazing doctor, not because she's my daughter. And uh, she rode horses her whole life. You know, animals always grounded her. She's a good kid. And she's selfless when it comes to animals. So uh, I'm very proud of that for her. But, uh, you know, as a young girl, she taught me. As a three-year-old, she taught me how much to love animals. Now, I always respected them, but I would die for one now. You know, I, I have, I would literally die for an animal. So, um, you know, she travels to Africa. She works on poacher, you know, anti-poacher reservations with rhinos and, uh, which I'll be traveling with her soon with that. And, um, you know, I, I just thought I, I love them so much and I do a lot, as much work as I can. I use my platform as much as I can helping maybe one animal at a time as much as I lose sleep over not being able to save them all. I I just, there's not enough I can do. Okay. I have this, I mean, I've always had animals. I I adore them and I'm crazy about them, but my, my latest, my, my Yorkshire Terrier is going to be three in October 21. I cannot Mm -hmm. keep him from not peeing on my carpet. I've done everything. Is there a great way I can keep him from peeing on my carpet? Absolutely not. Not even <laughs> that was a great. little. Uh, no, just get used to it. Don't even buy a new carpet. Have your cleaning Thank lady you. clean it up. The cleaning lady you don't like, just have her keep cleaning it. And uh, just accept it for what it is. Well, you were very helpful. Thank you very much. Okay. Do you watch all the other housewife shows on TV? I watch some of them. I do. I, I like to support my franchise as they support me. I like to... Because, you know, we uh, do meet each other at times. We do things with each other. And I like to know about the people that I'm sitting next to out of respect for them. 
So, uh, yeah, I do. I've made friends with some of them. Not all, Cindy. No, I, I'm sure of that. But what did you learn from Doing all of these all of these yentas that you're with? What have you learned? What's your takeaway? Oh, I'll tell you um, what my takeaway is. is uh, I don't always trust them. You can't always trust. <laughs> uh, no, but what have I learned? Um, that we all, you know, no matter what you think of somebody... Sometimes you look at a woman and you say, oh, she's just a princess. Or she's, we all work very hard. All of us work very, very hard. And that's yeah. the one thing we do share in common. Okay. What about BravoCon? I know that's October 14th to 16th. Are you doing something with that? I am. I am a part of it all three days. What, and, well, what, uh, what is it? What do you do? BravoCon is like ComCon. So there's about 60,000 people coming, flying in from all over the world. And it's when we get to meet our fans and really interact in person with them. You know, on a, daily, on a weekly basis, they invite us into their living rooms. Now they're coming to see us personally and, and see us uh, speak and, and, and take pictures. And just show. it's really a, a, a show of appreciation to the fans. What about the schmatas you wear? Are they yours or are they given to you by the studio? Oh, okay. So um, we pay for our own clothes. We buy our own clothes, hair and makeup. Uh, sometimes that is covered, but um, our schmatas are sometimes gifted to us as a designer. What, what designer wouldn't want us to be wearing what they, yeah, they have? Yeah, of course. You know? Of course. Well, if people see you on the street, Dolores, what do they say to you? Uh, mostly, Cindy, and I, uh, they, uh, they, they say thank you for the work that I do, my philanthropy work with animals yeah. and with women. Yeah. They thank me for that. And, um, you know, they're very nice. I never, I never want anyone to have a bad experience meeting me. Nobody has said something nasty to you? Nobody has said, why, your big mouth? Nobody has said anything like that? Never once, no. Mm -mm. I'm going to be the first... <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead, Jen. Okay. Which, thank you. And which housewife do you like? Uh, I like them all for different reasons. Oh, come on. You're just going to not give me any information. Is that it? Well, no, that's actually the truth. There's actually, that's actually let, the truth. Let me change. There's some I trust more than others. There's some that I argue with. But I, if you, if you watch the show, Cindy, you know that I'm friends with everyone. Yes, you're going to be friends with me, too, because you're not telling me anything. So let me ask you one more thing. Mm -hmm. Is there one housewife you clash with more than others? Oh, yeah, of course. Of course there is. Uh, Ramona Singer from New York. Okay, okay. Her and I have had our clashes, but that's nothing to brag about. I think that most of the population have clashed with her. Okay. Where are you going now that I had to talk to you right away because you were you were busy? You were busy and you had we to talk filming, to me. We are filming, um, but you're such an icon that I would not want to pass up speaking to you, so thank you for your time. Uh, I'm, we're filming our um, photo shoots for the, for the premiere and for the new season. Thank you for coming to talk to me, Dolores. You were adorable. You're you didn't tell me anything, but you were adorable. <laughs> well, you know, that's I'm a cop at heart. I was raised 
from a cop. To, I was raised by a cop, Cindy. I'm sorry. Okay. 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 Thank you. I know. I'm, I'm not going to fight with an ex-corrections officer. Oh, you can take it. No, she Thank you. In. Thank you, sweetie. Right, thank Thanks, you. Dolores. Thank you. Okay, honey. Bye. A name you know who's in the know. It's the Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. Okay, so I am now speaking to Rabbi Deborah Bravo. First, tell me, what is the proper way to introduce you or to talk to you? Do I call you Rabbi or your worship or Deborah? What, what, what should I do? Rabbi is just fine, or Rabbi Bravo. If you're one of my two children, it's just hey mom, but Rabbi Bravo is fine. Okay, so Rabbi Bravo, where did you go to school? I went to school at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, uh, which has four campuses in over the world, Israel, New York City, Los Angeles, and Cincinnati. I actually attended Jerusalem for one year and then Cincinnati for the rest. So what is in your head? I mean, when you went to school, were you extremely involved in Judaism? So I was. I grew up in a pretty liberal Jewish home in the suburbs of Chicago. And I went to a Jewish summer camp and was involved in youth group. But, you know, pretty typical family went to public schools. And um, my parents were, I would say, observant in a liberal environment. And um, by the time I was in high school, I knew that this was something I was really interested in. And I was fortunate to have a few key role models who said to me, have you ever thought about being a rabbi? So they planted the seeds pretty early. And by the time I went off to college, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Was there some special event that happened to you that sparked your life to go in this direction? I'm not sure that I would say it was one event in particular. I think it was just a a series of different relationships with different uh, role models, teachers, rabbis, educators, as well as an incredible Jewish camp experience every summer in Wisconsin, Um, you know, partnered with growing up in a synagogue where we had a lot of people who became rabbis and cantors and Jewish educators. And so it didn't seem so far removed as a profession. Well, How do male rabbis feel about female rabbis? So I think in much of the Jewish world, uh, women and men as rabbis are pretty equally accepted. We just celebrated 50 years of women in the rabbinate in the reform movement. And the conservative movement, um, reconstructionist movements are just a little bit behind that. But we're, we're very happy to be celebrating 50 years. There's been a lot of accomplishment and success over the last 50 years. And I think having women as rabbis has really strengthened the rabbinate overall. There are certainly segments within the Jewish world, particularly in the more orthodox areas where women are not yet accepted as rabbis. Um, Even in the modern orthodox world, we see women who are functioning in that rabbinic capacity. Is there the equivalent of a lady rabbi in the Bible? So there really weren't rabbis in the Bible at all. Um, the, the rabbis don't come about until a later time period, what we call the rabbinic time period. So in the first, second, third, fourth centuries is really when we are introduced to the concept of rabbis. So the, the Torah, the, the five books of Moses, what might be referred to as Old Testament, 
um, that is um, that's really where we see priests and prophets and leaders. But we don't really have the terminology of rabbi until a later time. And of course, in the early days, for many, many centuries, rabbis were only very learned men yes, who yes, sat around yeah, and studied, yeah. and, you know, that was really the, the model. Um, but as of a couple centuries ago, we started to learn about women who wanted to engage in deeper Talmud, which is Jewish law, learning, and Torah, which is the five books of Moses. Um, there were women who were starting to engage in that study, and, and now we have many, many women who are rabbis. Is there a special, um, uh, what, what do you call it? Do you have to do something special to become one? How do you become an official rabbi? What must you go through? So what I went through, and it's different for everyone, but um, for many of the rabbis, especially in the more liberal world, we go through rabbinic school, uh, seminary in essence, we go to four years of college, undergraduate, and then this is really a graduate school program, and it's called ordination. So in Hebrew, we call it nicha, that you receive um, rabbinic ordination at the end of your study. So I studied for five years after college to be able to receive my rabbinic ordination. So there's no special thing like dipping in water or doing any, any symbolic kind of thing. Rituals that um, people can choose to participate in. So when I was just before I became a rabbi, there's something called a mikvah, which yes, is a yes. ritual bath. You, you're probably familiar with that. Yes, so I am. Typically, yeah. Typically, we we learn about that when babies are born or when people are converting. Um, women will often go to the mikvah once a month in order to cleanse themselves. Um, but we, a group of us in Cincinnati, chose to create a ritual around mikvah before we became rabbis as a way to symbolize a, a significant transition in our lives. Where is there a rabbinical school? So there are, they're all over. There's one in New York City. Uh, the one I attended is in Cincinnati, but the same school has a campus in the village in New York City. There's one in Los Angeles, one in Jerusalem, but there are other seminaries. There's Jewish Theological Seminary that has a campus in New York and one in LA. There's Hebrew College, which is based out of Boston. Um, there's other seminaries in California, in Chicago, and other locations. And of course, around the world, in Israel, and in other European places. But there are different degrees of Judaism. So are there different degrees of rabbi schools, like uh, progressive or not progressive? Are there that that as well? Yes. So um, Judaism does have a number of different what we call movements. So you have the reform movement, the reconstructionist movement, the conservative movement, the... um, there, there are some that are non-denominational, so there are a lot of communities where they're not specifically tied or connected to one movement. And all of that is also true for rabbinic schools. So we have the rabbinic school in the reform movement and rabbinic school in the conservative movement and in the reconstructionist movement. And then you have non-denominational schools like Hebrew College, like AJR is also New York City. Um, there, are, there are a number of schools now that are highly regarded that 
are not specifically connected to any one of the movements. And then, of course, you have a number of different places where Orthodox rabbis can study to become Orthodox, to become rabbis. If anybody just tuned in and doesn't know what I'm doing here, I'm speaking to Rabbi Deborah Bravo, and I'm going to ask so many questions because it's so interesting. What about wardrobe? What clothes do you wear? Do you have to cover your shoulders and your arms? And what what is required of you? So there's no specific dress. I choose to wear a kippah or a yarmulke, which is a head covering. Yeah. So I typically wear one whenever I'm doing any work as a rabbi. So if I'm teaching, if I'm visiting people in a hospital, if I'm officiating at a wedding or a funeral, um, leading prayer, you know, any of that, I'm always covering my head as a way to show respect for God. I often get asked, I was uh, finishing up something yesterday and ran to Lowe's to pick up a few things, and uh, I had my kippah on, and somebody stopped me and said, I didn't know women wear those. So um, I'm (laughs) often asked because they often don't see women with them, but many women do choose to wear head coverings. I wear a prayer shawl called a talit whenever I'm leading services. So that's another way for me to create a more intimate sacred space within an already sacred space. Otherwise... I just tend to, you know, dress appropriately for the role that I'm in. And I, um, on the High Holy Days that just completed Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, we wear white. So in my community, we don't wear robes, which a lot of people do wear still, but we chose to wear white dresses and, and white talit, white prayer shawls, as a way to symbolize just the holiness of this time period. So if you went swimming, if you did, I mean, would you be wearing a, a, a bathing suit? Yeah, I mean, I'm a very liberal person in that regard. So yes, I would just wear a bathing suit. I wear tank tops. I wear shorts, skirts. But when I'm in Israel and I'm walking through an Orthodox section of Israel, I'll dress appropriately because I want to be respectful of other people's uh, communities and their rules and guidelines. Um, so where does Rabbi Deborah Bravo Bless. What? Where is your synagogue? Ah, so I live out on Long Island and I live in Woodbury. And I actually started a new model of Jewish community just over seven years ago. I, we are intentionally without walls, which means we have a space we use regularly in Bethpage, New York, which is Plainview, Woodbury, Syosset area. Um, but we also purposefully meet in different places, in restaurants and diners and in my home a lot, in the backyard, in parks. We Our goal is to really meet people where they are and not always to make Judaism look one way, but to really allow people to connect with Judaism in multiple different ways. So what kind of a life does a rabbi, a lady rabbi do? I mean, would you play cards? Do you, do you drink? Do you, do you watch TV shows? I mean, I don't know. Great question. So I definitely watch TV shows. My husband's a huge movie fan, so we try to find movies that we both like. It's a hard task, but we try. Um, and I, I play cards. I, I love games. I happen to have grown up in a family that loves games. So I have tried to instill that into my children with a little bit of success, not so much. Um, you know, I, I work a lot. I, I definitely work many, many hours, but I also have flexibility to parent and, you know, be a, a spouse and a, you know, a wife and a daughter and 
a sister when I need to do all of those things as well, be a friend. Um, but I, I do work many, many hours. Um, and it is the kind of a job where we're always on call. If somebody calls and needs me to go visit someone in the hospital or someone just died and I need to officiate at a funeral, you know, there is an urgency to some of what we do, not everything, um, but some of what we do, there is definitely an urgency too. So I do keep a very busy schedule, but it also does allow me some flexibility. My, my children are teenagers now, once in high school, once in college, but when they were little, if I needed to be home with them or they were sick and I needed to take them to a doctor, being a rabbi did allow me some flexibility. It wasn't a traditional nine to five job. So what's your husband do? Does he obey you? I mean, what, what, does, your, what does your husband do? He is a musician by profession. And, um, you know, we are definitely equals in our marriage. So I, I don't know if he'd agree with that, but yes, we are. <laughs> and um, he actually is the accompanist and musical director in our community. He's done a lot of Jewish music work over the years, and he plays with our community and also with another local community out here on Long Island. And he used to perform with a number of Jewish singer-songwriters, and he would travel the country with them, the, the most famous of which was Debbie Friedman of Blessed Memory now. But, um, but now he really is a, he, he's my partner in helping to create this community. We, we do a lot out of our home. So because of that, we're often hosting dinners on Friday nights, Shabbat dinners for 25, 35 people. We build what's called a sukkah that's in our backyard right now because starting Sunday evening, we begin the festival of Sukkot. And that is a festival where we're supposed to have this booth-like um, hut in our backyard. Sukkot. I thought it was people. pronounced Sukkot. Yes. Yeah, so some people pronounce it Sukkot. Um, but that is the what I call the Ashkenaz pronunciation, the kind oh, of old Hebrew okay. pronunciation. Oh, it's okay. There's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> and so if you're pronouncing it with the modern Hebrew accent, it's Dukot. It's exactly the same word. So who was the first woman rabbi? Was there a first woman rabbi? There has to have been. Oh, yes, definitely. So in the United States, the first woman rabbi was is Rabbi Sally Prezan. She was ordained in 1972, and she was ordained from HUC. She presided at Stephen White Synagogue, was her first pulpit out in New York City. And she wound up making her way to serve a smaller uh, community in New Jersey for most of her rabbinate. Okay, I have one, one, one last question. Yeah. Are we experiencing more anti-Semitism than ever before? Unfortunately, I do believe that we are seeing a, a rise in anti-Semitism in the most Jewish of areas as well as in the most non-Jewish of areas. So we're experiencing it out here on Long Island where, you know, Jews are a pretty large majority here. And we're also seeing it in my colleagues' communities across the country where there aren't as many Jews. I think, unfortunately, it, it is about anti-Semitism, but it's also about a an underlying hatred and racism that is quite prevalent in the United States right now. Well, I thank you very much for speaking with me. It was very interesting, and um, I do hope to meet you one day. It would be well, nice. I look forward to it. I hope you have a great week. Thank you. Thank you very much, Rabbi. Thank you. You're very Bye-bye. welcome. Take care. Bye. Bye. The Cindy Adams Show, 77 WABC. 
Listen, I have written about midnight September 1989 once before. I am remembering it again. It was Hurricane Hugo. It was the worst killer storm to ever hit the Carolinas. I arrived to see my longtime friend, Mickey Spillane. In those days, he was then Earth's top kill him, shoot him, maim him mystery writer who'd done 50 bestsellers featuring his fiction hero, Mike Hammer. He was on radio, he was on movies, he was on television, he was the number one hotshot mystery writer. And he asked me to come over to see his house. I was his close friend. In what remained of Myrtle Beach, the 18-room Murrell's Inlet house he'd lived in for 35 years, there was nothing left. Totally gone. His boat sat in what would have been his living room. A live pelican flapped in the dining room. The pelican was sitting on a dock. The dock was now sitting in the dining room. Mickey and I examined wreckage with a flashlight, but the pelican flapped his wings, chased us, and threw us out A giant hole was the once glorious White House, the section fronting the water totally gone, a gleaming porcelain white toilet festooned the front yard. The front door hung, the steps leading up to it all gone. Trash was piled against a five-foot watermark like some frightening sculpture. There were weird things stuck to shredded screens. A rocking chair, not theirs, suddenly found its way into their library. Saltwater crabs, alive and well, crawled everywhere. Mickey's own boat, as I said, wound up inside the house, in the living room. He said our neighbor once had our house keys. But who needs house keys when there's no more house? He and I sat on a porch, festooned with fallen trees and bushes. The roof sagged. Our legs were in water. The floor had a hole. The walls were hanging. A boiler sat on the front yard along with water pipes, kitchen freezer, clothes iron, and a rocking chair that didn't even belong to him. He doesn't know how it got there. We saw a now-rusted, pot-bellied stove, a smashed Tiffany lamp, a Mexican tile kitchen, which by then was then history, and an assessed $3,000 in stored groceries. In what had been Mickey's office, an ashtray, not his, that blew in from somewhere, said, Home sweet home. An Ethan Allen chair got used for kindling. Service for 12 left only one pewter salt shaker 
under a sound a sound of a mound of mud. He said the new house finally rebuilt was because the old one had become unsolvable. He said I bulldozed and I had to start over. It cost me half a million just to tear it down and another million to rebuild. I had to start from scratch. It took nine months, and this was 1989. The new house was put on stilts. It had 100% structural integrity, he was told. It was 10 feet off the ground, three stories, concrete foundation. The structure had enormous power. A whole level was put underneath his first floor, like a carport. When I went there, I saw it was up on hurricane ties. Concrete steel posts deep into the ground were up through the walls to the second story, and hurricane windows that he was assured could withstand tremendous winds were put on the walls. It was pine floors, old-fashioned Victorian tub on an oak pedestal, a new old-style pull-chain toilet, and worry, he said, will not put anything back. He said, I've been through too much. I can't survive doing this again. Mickey was a Jehovah's Witness, and through his prayers, he stayed cool. He sat me in remnants of a rocking chair, and he said to me, Look, I am now 78. I am gray. I lucky I am that I still have a few hairs left. I cannot spend what's left of my life worrying. He pointed me to his trusty antique Smith Corona typewriter. He found a 500-year-old bottle of wine. He poured it into a paper cup, and he said, Listen, I am still doing okay for an old bastard. That was my first hurricane that I sat through. And now, coming from Florida, two partners who had just suffered the hurricane, were on a train back from Florida. One suddenly jumped up screaming, my God, I left the safe open. The other partner shrugged and said, so what are you worried about? We're both here, aren't we? I spoke to my friend Judge Judy. Her Florida home, the garage completely wiped out, totally flooded. Cars were in water. The generator was out. The electricity was out. Family members in a nearby condo could not get to their high-rise apartment, and there was no way yet to assess the damage. Too much water around. She told me, Judy, the day it hit, I was safe and dry in L.A., it's ironic that my schedule was to fly east that very day, and because of commitments, 
we had to cancel. Someone, said Judge Judy, was watching over us. Back a lot of years ago, when Hurricane Sandy hit, the New York freshman then, whose name was Congressman Ron DeSantis, now governor of Florida, did not approve that New York needed federal assistance. New York Republicans were furious. Now that he's in need of federal funds, and of course there is no opposition, when last the feds gave DeSantis funds, it was COVID relief. He actually spent a chunk to send migrants to Martha's Vineyard. Prayers are, he spends the new hurricane damage money, the billions, he will spend it for helping and remedying devastation on his state. Hey, the Naples, Florida residents in the 17th floor high-rise cannot get upstairs. There's no power, no generator, no word about repair. Residents told me, don't call the office. Don't call us. It will be several weeks. We've been told, don't call anybody for help. We can't help you. The garages are flooded. The cars have been towed to junkyards. Our houses, our trucks, our automobiles are sitting in the bay. Our entire docks are bobbing in the canal. So don't call to try to help us. You can't. This is all I have to tell you. And I will talk to you again next week when I have better information. I love you. Please listen. It's Cindy Adams at WABC Radio, 770 AM on the dial. Bye. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com.